Today we're going to get into a topic that is definitely a hotter topic, but I think very necessary for the current times that we live in. The term cult, which gets thrown around all the time, uh, is, is something that is a confusing term. And the question is, what is a cult? What is a simple definition for how you would describe a cult? And it's important. It's really important because part of why uh, we need to touch this is that the label, if you get labeled as a cult, it's a very powerful sort of influence that can befall upon people. And, and I just want people to be informed. We've got a very special guest who is incredibly equipped to help us to have this conversation in particular, Douglas Jacoby, who has been on the channel before, and you can go check his, uh, his video out on trauma and the Bible. But he's an international Bible teacher who's written over 30 books, recorded nearly a thousand podcasts, spoken in over 100 universities, 500 cities, and 126 nations around the world. And he is a humble man. He's approachable. I think that's important when you are smart and intelligent and gifted to, to remain approachable. He currently resides in Edinburgh, Scotland. Doug, welcome to the channel again, my brother. Thank you, Kyle. Good to see you again. All right, we're going to jump straight in because we've got a two-part interview. This is the first of a second interview. Uh, this interview is what is a cult, and the next interview is going to be what is religious bullying. So let's get into our first question, which is the term cult can be applied to secular or religious groups. Okay, I want to start out with a basic understanding of how you define the term cult. All right, well, uh, a common definition, this is one from a dictionary, a religion or sect considered to be false, unorthodox, or extremist, with members often living outside of conventional society under the direction of a charismatic leader. I mean, certainly you're right, a cult could, I mean, if you follow a rock star, you, you could be in a cult. Any system of worship is technically a cult, but it's the scare word, it's the negative word. And I became a Christian in 1977. A couple of years later, I think it was 79, was when Jim Jones led his cult to Guyana, South America, and they drank the Kool-Aid. Approximately a thousand people died. And that scared parents of particularly college students all over the land. And so uh, I've been fighting that, um, that the, the negative word cult sometimes has been applied to the churches I've been part of for quite a long time. Yeah, and I, 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 it's interesting that you had talked about drinking the Kool-Aid because I asked my wife, who is a brilliant off-the-record theologian, and she had mentioned that same term, drinking the Kool-Aid. So she literally oh. referenced what you had just mentioned. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, not everyone knows what that means, but they actually drank Kool-Aid. It was poison, and, and they died. Yeah, and you had mentioned the word charismatic. I think that's an important word. Can you, can you just break down what that word means for our people for a moment? Sure, and, and I, I could share um, other characteristics of cults. Charisma is, is basically a Greek word, meaning a gift. Charismatic is someone who's, who's gifted in leadership or speaking, but who actually draws the energy, uh, not always from God, it's often from the crowd. It's by demanding the respect and that energy comes from the crowd. There's kind of a dynamic between the leader figure and, and those who follow. Uh, characteristics of a cult, normally charismatic leader, high degree of control. Uh, the bottom line is normally recruitment, 
and money uh, to help the group to grow, uh, sometimes deception, uh, often, normally, an opaque system. So if someone wanted to know, well, how do the finances work, or who makes the decisions, or what's the method being used here for interpreting scripture? Uh, good luck. Um, spiritual abuse, those who speak up would be punished or expelled. Normally, uh, cult members don't read the Bible. And in many cases, their leader has written an alternate Bible. I guess functionally, it's similar if you have a Bible, but you're only allowed to read it in one way, the way that supports the system. And then one last characteristic, the us versus them mentality. Uh, we alone have the truth. We cannot possibly be wrong. Everyone else is the enemy or, or will be a convert to the group, which actually reminds me of Islam. Mm. <laughs> those, I think those, that would be most of the, uh, the, the accepted characteristics of cult. I appreciate that. That gives us a foundation, a framework that we can work from. <clears throat> because I think for a lot of people, it, things get emotional. And what happens is, is they use that term to talk about a group that they had a negative experience with. And I think it's important that we delineate a group that you had a negative experience with, which is quite possible and damage could have absolutely occurred. And when you talk about something being a cult, it has to meet certain specifications. I, it's not a word that I would want to throw around lightly, Doug. No, um, partly because all groups have some of those characteristics. And also, you can throw that around, but it may be turned back, back on you. It's a scare <laughs> word. Um, and often, uh, I think, used unfairly of any group that it expects a high level of commitment. Mm. Sometimes that's the real issue. People don't want to, they don't want the Lordship of Christ. And anyone who says you need to make Jesus Lord, that's a threat to them. So they, they use words like cult or mind, mind control, you know, words and phrases that will make people sit up and, and, and be anxious. Yeah, I appreciate that. Very concise and effective. Um, <clears throat> what are some misapplications of scripture common misapplications of scripture used within cults. And the reason why I think this is really important, because you just mentioned in your opening sort of soliloquy there that what people do is they rework the text. Maybe they come up with an alternative version of events that had happened and that gets set next to, and you can, you can just imagine what group I'm thinking of right now without saying it, but that gets set next to scripture. And now it's Jesus plus. And so, can you tell us a little bit more about the misapplications of scripture yeah. within cults? Yes, I've given quite some thought to this and you know, I didn't say it Kyle, but thank you for even suggesting this as an interview topic. I think it's important and, uh, and timely. So typical misapplications. Uh, I thought I have seven thoughts for you. Okay. Shall I, you want me to do them all straight through or you want me to do them one at a time? Straight through. Uh, typically, the leader claims that God is guiding him or her, that, that there's a hotline to God. That, and, and the language is often used in public speaking tends to reinforce this. Uh, you hear, well, God showed me, or the Spirit told me, or God put this on my heart, and that's what we're going to do, which is a kind of a controlling thing, because if God put it on that person's heart. Who am I to suggest 
a variation of that plan that's being proposed. So, um, but the, there's a claim that somehow God is guiding them. And that's very tricky because as Christians, we do believe we have a relationship with God and we are trying to follow God. But when someone is putting himself, elevating himself way above others, claiming to be the Messiah or claiming to be a prophet or apostle, that that's, uh, it's very hard to come back. The, uh, a scripture that's often misused is in Matthew 11, which speaks about forceful men and the kingdom of God. It's not even clear that that's the right translation, but this kind of exalting of forceful men, uh, men and women who get their way, who get the job done, a phrase like they're kick down the door leaders, uh, shoot first, ask questions later, that kind of idea. Uh, in modern evangelicalism in recent decades, and I think uh, uh, Christian Dumais' book on Jesus and John Wayne points this out really well, passages about character, like the Beatitudes or the fruit of the Spirit, uh, if they're men, they're given a buy. They don't really have to follow that if they get the job done. Those are more feminine passages. But uh, there's, being a forceful man is not a good thing biblically, if I understand it. Once I was in Africa, and someone with a certain amount of, uh, well, I mean, he was actually hesitant to even bring it up. He said, what do you think about the verse, touch not my prophets? Now, this is in the Psalms. I said, well, what do you mean? The passage about God protecting Abraham and the patriarchs in Genesis? He said, well, no, it's that we, shouldn't, we should never give feedback to our leaders. I said, I can't believe that passage is being used in that way. Um, passages frequently taken out of context. Passages that may seem to justify bullying. And I know we'll talk about that in our other interview. So often it's, it's, it's not that a passage has been uh, twisted. It's that it's a matter of emphasis. So if your whole approach is we're going to focus on Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, a wonderful thing, but not Matthew 25, loving the needy, and if it's viewed that, well, somehow they're in tension with each other and the more you help the needy, the less you'll evangelize the world, that's not good. If your theology is controlled by one passage like Matthew 28 or Matthew 25, it would be imbalanced. If it's all Matthew 25 and no evangelism, that's not right. And what about Matthew 22? Why, you know, why couldn't that be the number one passage? Loving God with all our heart, loving our neighbor as ourselves. So it's a matter of emphasis. And my last thought on this is, I, I, it's the phrase that I've, I've come to use, biblical integrity. If you're presenting your plan, your teaching, your preaching, and your goal is really to enforce an agenda. Sometimes it's called meeting the needs. Okay, we need to get the contribution up or we want to improve attendance or whatever. And so you put together a talk. It may be a very good talk. It may be very inspirational, but it doesn't really come from the scriptures. The scriptures are added in at the end for the ring of truth or for the sound of authority. It's really a pep talk. And I think in many groups, there are excellent speakers, but they're not really preaching the word. They are using the word in their messages, but they're more like inspirational speakers. And that's not biblical integrity. I don't have a right as a preacher, as a teacher, as a writer to make the scriptures say what I want it to say. My job is to discover what it means. And often that means changing my mind. So those are... Um, some thoughts on the misuse of scripture. And 
these would obviously apply to all kinds of churches and sects, not just the more extreme cults, because a lot of the cults don't even use scripture. They, they use their alternative writings. Yeah, very Is helpful. You know, enough? one of the sad things that you are well aware of are the number of church scandals that are being uncovered. And it is wide sweeping. Mm. It's not just the, I mean, they're all mega church culture, of course, which it, we could do our own podcast on mega church culture. Um, but when you think of like, I was talking to someone today and I didn't realize this, but one of the editors of Christianity Today has now been accused. And I think of John MacArthur and, and, and I don't want to get too much into name calling or anything. That's not the purpose of this interview. But some of the most lauded and respected folks who had a closed system, mm. who ran within that closed system, are now facing consequences. And, and there's just a lot of, I mean, there's kind of this accountability right now where we're trying to hold everything and everyone accountable all at once. I think accountability is good. But let's just go back to how this starts in the first place. That we have groups, and it's a closed group, and the things that you've listed, the leader hotline to God, forceful men, you know, matter of emphasis, biblical integrity, these are all things that people, people yearn for security, especially in, in changing times. And so, you know, the Bible says that people are comparable mm -hmm. to, to sheep and sheep need to be led, that sheep need a shepherd. And so people, you know, and I think of Matthew 11 later on, you know, Jesus talks about these lazy shepherds and how he's different. And so I just think it's interesting. We're in a culture we're in. If, if there's a time to talk about this stuff, it's now. Because Christianity is kind of almost taking a, a, on a black eye. Because what's the next scandal that's going to come out? And of course, with these scandals, you find a cult culture, it seems, that surrounds the scandal. Is that sort of what you've noticed? I've noticed that there's more and more exposure of scandal and a corresponding rise in skepticism that easily would influence us to throw out the good with the bad, the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. And so it's, it's very good. I think it's essential that things be exposed, be brought to the light. We're supposed to live as children of the light, Ephesians 5, to expose the deeds of darkness, not cover them up. On the other hand, it's easy to get into a very cynical mode, um, you know, like it, the spirit of inquisition. You know, I'm, I'm just looking for heresy. I'm looking for malpractice. I'm looking for wrong. And, and then not being able to ever see the good in people. And most of us, we're, we're an interesting blend of good and bad, of, of the flesh and the spirit, of righteousness and, and willfulness, selfishness. And we, we can become very uh, arrogant um, if, if we become hypercritical. So somewhere between being hypercritical and uh, just ignoring what goes on is the, the balance point. Don't ask me where that is because I don't know. Well, I appreciate you bringing that up because the point of what I do is I like to really kind of work with the both and. The, the hardest thing is to hold two things in tension. That's what we call paradox. And so Jesus came as this system disruptor because he saw how cultic things had been and how corrupted. Really at the heart of it is that it damages people. And, and God has a very high view of people. And I think that's part of, I think, why this hurts God's heart so much um, is because he has an incredibly high value for people. And he takes how people are treated incredibly 
serious, incredibly seriously. And so um, I just want that to be at the heart of all of this. And to your point, we, we got to make sure that we don't go to the extremes because, you know, for me, as I study trauma, you find that you don't really find answers on the extremes. And, and I really appreciate you continuing to, to pull us into a balance point, Doug. I really appreciate that. Um, the next question, and for our viewers, I, I, I've got a wide audience. You know, I get it. I've got people who aren't necessarily connected with the fellowship that I'm, I'm connected with. And, and, but I think what we're going to talk about is going to be applicable. Um, the International Churches of Christ has been deemed, and, and I know this is sensitive, guys, um, but I, we're going to do it well, as a cult by several groups, namely CARM. And there's other Facebook groups that we'll talk about in a little bit that have also alleged that the ICOC, the International Churches of Christ, is a cult. And although this is a sensitive issue, what are some ways that the ICOC mirrored certain characteristics found in cults? And again, I want to be very respectful, and I don't want to say that the ICOC is, is a cult, but I, I think that's fair for us to look at certain tendencies and, and just hold those up to the light a little bit. Right, so the ICOC is is not a single church. Uh, currently, it's 700 plus congregations, and there's quite a wide spectrum uh, of experience. I am I am familiar with CARM. I've had some dealings with them and CAN, the Cult Awareness Network, and several other um, uh, in the last, especially in the last uh, 40 years or so. And uh, often people have been told, don't listen to them, don't go to their website, um, it'll just mess you up. And I think even that could be counterproductive because sometimes these these guys, they make some good points and we need to listen. At any rate, um, as far as my own fellowship, I think control is a big thing. Uh, controlling people. I, I was at a conference. This is long ago. This is more than 30 years ago. I share it because it's it's relevant and it continues. But one of the messages had two points. The world, you know, our, our job, of course, is to evangelize the world. The world is the battlefield and the weapon is authority. Simply tell people what to do. Tell the members what to do. Control. I, I've done several talks on my website on control. I think that's a big deal. And it's something that um, has been an issue for me. You know, if I just looked at... Um, some of the things that I've mentioned before uh, in, in the earlier part of this interview, charismatic leadership, the emphasis has generally tended to be more on finding leaders who have dynamic or sometimes even flamboyant personalities with the thought that they can work on character later on. They can grow into the job uh, and work on character later. I think that's a huge mistake. It's backwards. Um, the, the preaching in general uh, has not equipped people to be good students of the Bible. Way too much three-point pep talks with scriptures added at the end, and sometimes not even really added at all. I think the emphasis, not where I am in the UK, but in many parts of the world, the emphasis on raising money, the number of contributions that are taken is, uh, to me, just crazy. It's, uh, it becomes all about money. Um, the opaque system, hard to know what's really going on, who's making the decisions. Now, that's the case in some places. Uh, spiritual abuse, different kinds of abuse. Yes, I've seen that in many parts of the world. Uh, the In terms of the 
Bible being honored less than the word of leaders. I'm afraid that is huge. That uh, people, if they have a thought that goes against church tradition, more often than not, it's not welcome. Uh, a, a phrase I started hearing a lot in the 90s was that we need to obey advice. So the person helping you in the Lord gives you advice, you need to obey the advice. And I try to point out, wait a minute, no, you obey commands. You know, command is obeyed, like a command of God. Advice is something that you ponder, you, you consider, you weigh. And the Bible teaches that if we're smart, we'll have many mentors, many advisors, many counselors, not one. And, and to be locked into just one who controls your life and gives you permission for any major decision you make. I think that's, that's cult-like. Uh, in terms of anger, uh, this is an a issue among, I, I don't know what percentage of leaders or even church leaders, but a lot of them, I think they need a good course in anger management. So they don't get their way, they bully. And then one other thought, Kyle, it's about uh, bigotry. Thinking I'm right, no one else is right. That's not quite the definition of, of bigotry I would go by. I like more the way G.K. Chesterton put it. Bigotry is not thinking that you're right, but it's being unable to imagine how you could possibly be wrong. I mean, we need to hold on to our convictions, but some are, are more clear than others, and maybe our emphasis is wrong. And maybe we're, we think we're being humble, and it, it's quite the opposite that we're uh, communicating. Uh, Yes, without mentioning names, and uh, I would say that I think that's a huge issue. So if someone said, well, your, your church or your fellowship is a cult, I would say that some congregations are like that, and that the label would fit pretty well. I would say those kinds of tendencies are deep in the DNA of the fellowship. Now, this exalting of leaders whose word is pretty much final uh, and I'm not saying everyone's like that. It really depends on where you are. And sometimes even in one congregation, people have opposite experiences. Some people, they praise the church for the grace and the freedom. And others say, you know, I, I can't breathe. I'm being suffocated. It may depend which group you're in or which leader you're under. So I, I, I don't want to just make a sweeping statements uh, that, that could lead to hurt or, or to distorting the reality. But yes, I am concerned that in many parts of the world, uh, there is either still this uh, hyper control or things were better, but now people are kind of going back saying, you know, it was better when we had a very clear battle plan and we had a charismatic leader to lead us and to tell us what to do. And so in some parts of the world, it's starting to feel like the 1980s or 1990s. It's like, have we not matured? Well. And let me just say this, part of why I'm doing this this episode is because of the conditioning that, I mean, there's some pretty deep circuitry for people. Even in our next interview, we'll talk about it, just that idea of, of when people have something that they consider sacred and another person doesn't share that, it, it does create like this us versus them and right, we moralize the wrong thing and we turn, anyway, that's the next one. But I, I want people to feel equipped with this conversation. We don't get good at conversations that we don't have. So this is something that people have to understand as people learn about mental health and trauma and at times that when they do examine what they've experienced in terms of trauma, we're not always good 
at processing that. And so when people are processing maybe some negative things that they've had that were legitimate maybe that have happened, they're going to process process that in a way that's probably going to make certain people who have stayed within this fellowship feel a little bit disoriented or de-skilled. Like, what do I say to this person who has this hurt, but I don't necessarily feel like it was an, it was that I needed to leave. And so there's a lot of people who stay or they'll see things on social media. And it's like, again, you know, you can kind of like your esteem as a church can really take some hits. And I can hear in many ministers the hurt. Like, you know, even today, I, you know, I just, I talk to ministers throughout the week and they're, they're just, they're hurting for people, but they, they feel like, man, I, I wasn't the one to hurt these people. Like there was someone else who did that 20 years ago who was cult-like and that's not me. And so I, I just want to say there's a lot of tension. I really like what you said, Doug, which is we can't make wide sweeping generalizations here. Um, I do want to, I do want to, I do want to bring up something though. Um, and I'm going to just say it this way. I feel like we've had fellowship tendencies that communicate elitism. And it's kind of similar to what you were saying. But I think, so as a trauma researcher, I like to look at how that gets there. So, like, for example, if there is elitism, like, so for me, when I became a Christian in 2001... I'm just going to out myself and, 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 and I'm going to be really, really, really honest. I did kind of feel like salvation skipped history, like 400 AD. That's the last entry point of Christianity. I don't know what happened, but all I know is in the seventies or the eighties, Christianity came back onto the scene and there was this memory wipe, you know, this, this time. And then all of a sudden, and I drank the Kool-Aid. I, I, I was like, we're the only ones. Literally, we're the only ones who were saved. And then there was this, we're the only church in the city. And we need to plant more churches because there's no, I'm just saying, I can only speak for myself. I did drink that Kool-Aid. And so I just, can you maybe, because you've been around long enough, um, it wasn't always that way. And it wasn't that way everywhere. But can you at least speak to that for the people? Sure. And You said you drank the Kool-Aid. I'm probably one of the people who helped to concoct or blend the Kool-Aid. It, it, make at least making it possible for that beverage to be to be uh, uh, distilled. I think it's really important when we're when we're talking because we are speaking in generalizations right now, but not to impugn people's motives. Sure, there are people whose motives have been terrible and it's been exposed, but. Most people who are part of a culture, who are part of a system, I, I think most Christians I know have good hearts. They're very patient. Uh, most leaders are trying to be loyal. They're trying to be faithful to God. Uh, sometimes the scripts that they're following are deep within them. These are things that have been cultivated to them from uh, for, for many years, for, for even decades, and they're trying to do what's right. Uh, so I'm not in the business of uh, impugning people's motives. But where the theology is off or the practice is damaging, yeah, I, I will have a lot to say about that. Um, tell me more what you want me to, to Yeah, respond so to, for instance, the exclusivity. Um, like, so I'm just going to say, like, the Catholic Church, 
they are able to be incredibly exclusive because they're, I mean, the Catholic church is, they're Microsoft. <laughs> they, there's a billion people. Um, and so there's a certain level of exclusivity that you find within denominations. Like this is not something that um, isn't common. Like denomination does create exclusivity. You need to go and do their rites and their rituals and, and their sacraments or whatever it is that you need to do to enter their membership. Yeah. So we had that too. But to be fair, yeah. most Catholics, yeah, but most Catholics, most Protestants, most Orthodox, Evangelicals, Independents, they might say, yeah, technically we think that we have the truth and you guys are wrong, but they wouldn't necessarily consider you to be outside the pale. You're, you're, you can't be saved unless you're one of us. There are groups that teach that, but most people are, in my experience, they're a lot more open. They're more tentative. Now, sometimes because they lack conviction and they don't know the Bible, they don't read the Bible. But other times it's because they realize there are differences of opinion it doesn't mean you're stupid just because you disagree with them. So that may sound like I'm trying to defend all denominations. I'm really just trying to defend freedom and, and, and underline the importance of respect. But Kyle, you mentioned elitism. Uh, it's one thing to say, oh, we're not the only Christians. And I was taught that in the 70s. I mean, I was taught the phrase, we're, we're, not, we're Christians only, but not the only Christians. And yet, if you're forbidden to let's say, have very close relationships with people in other religious groups, or if you read the books of certain figures, but you would never invite them to your fellowship uh, to speak, then there's a contradiction there. So it sounds good to say we're not the only Christians because it sounds incredibly arrogant otherwise. But if you act as though you are, uh, things get weird. And I, I think that many people act as though they think they are the only ones even though they, they're very hesitant to say that, and many don't believe that, they're the only ones. So that's a, that, that addresses your question about elitism to some extent. But I think we need a lot more humility, a lot more. Uh, we're, we're wrong on some things. Every group is wrong on some things. We, we haven't arrived. We're on the way. Uh, we're under construction. We haven't got there. I haven't got there as an individual. I know you would never claim to be there. You're trying to, to be a good minister of the gospel. I'm trying to be a good minister of the gospel. But so someone thinks that I've arrived. There's nothing. I have no need to, to improve. That's scary. One thing that scares me is how many Christian leaders say, I learned everything I need to know about ministry 10 years ago or 20 or 30 years ago. And that's why I don't do any continuing education. You know, I read the occasional book and I read my Bible every day, but no continuing education. To me, theology is essential. We need education and grounding and it needs to continue, especially for church workers. But overall, there's a tremendous resistance. Now, I know a huge number of people who think opposite on that, but the vast majority see no need for education. They've, they've, They've learned what they need to know. Am I being a bit unfair, a bit mean? No, no, I, I, I think there's I, two. I that. I'm sorry no, no, I, I think there's two issues. One is the missional posture that I want to go back to. And then the other one is the, and it's so easy, you know, to be overwhelmed, to be ignorant and arrogant, right? Arrogance is one thing, but it's another thing when you add ignorance to it, right? So 
if, if we're going to just be ignorant, okay, then let's not add arrogance. <laughs> that would be unfortunate. That would be a gross error. So there's that part. Let me go back just for a moment to something that kind of leads into the next question a little bit. But this idea of where God's activity is, like even the term kingdom and theologically the way I think about it mm. is that where the rule and reign and where God's activities are occurring. So the kingdom is not something you can put in a box. We see at the end of the passion narratives, you know, the disciples are trying to take possession of who the saved people are. And should we stop this person? And in the Greek, it's a very intense word to stop, to shut this person down. And then Jesus says, who he, who isn't against us is, is what? And so I, I, I look at us, yeah. a maturation that's happening. Like I get that there were some postures of elitism when it comes to converting the world. But one thing I find Doug is that there's quite a bit, a bit of humility with people who've gone through like Rochester and the missional theology that I think has been really healthy. And I think the tide is turning with ministers deciding to get a biblical education and they are going more in that missional direction. Now, do they agree with everything and so forth? No, but I love it because it's a different perspective that says instead of come to us, no, we need to go out where God is working. That's a radical shift, Doug. And can you just speak to that as a teacher, someone who probably has been feeling that for years, but how important is that going to be for us moving forward? Uh, incredibly important. I think the, the fellowship has tracked the evangelical world in its leadership, you know, the senior pastor model, desire to become big, uh, mega churches, ideally 2,000 plus members with lots of programs. And when you become like that, it, it's easy to say, come to us. Uh, but real church, I agree with Ron Highfield, who wrote Rethinking Church, the, the professor of religion at Pepperdine, that church is what happens in the small group. Big church is likely to say, please join a small group, but to view church as coming on Sunday and supporting with your money and your presence, all of our programs. And that's what Ron calls parachurch. That's really on the side. But in many, too many churches, the small group is on the side. That's somewhat optional, strongly encouraged, but optional. So I think it's, uh, things are quite backwards. Does that make sense, Kyle? Well, just that idea that God is working and we're going to go out where he's working. There's a humility there and, and it's, it's, it's a commission, right? It means that there's a partnership. Yeah. So the great, it's not the great mission where we're saying, Hey Jesus, we've got something and we, it's our thing. And, and we want you to come and join us. No, God, we want to join you. <laughs> that feels like a very right. different Jesus posture. traveled around. He's on foot. <laughs> yeah. J Jesus didn't just, Jesus didn't just set up a camp in Galilee and tell everyone to come to him. They went out like for us in Scotland, we're really trying to break into community through relationships. Uh, my, my wife has found a lot of ways to help the poor in the town where we live. And, and for me, I've, I've had opportunities to, to meet a number of, of leaders in the community. And that's led to speaking opportunities that I, I would never have if I just said, you have to come to us. But if we're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, we have to go. And go is, it's not just okay, be evangelistic, but it's, it's actually go, actually 
uh, get become part of become connected with the structures where we live and not to do that and just to wait for people to come to us is it's counterproductive and i don't think it's biblical i use myself as an example because this is such a sensitive issue um, as it relates to us taking a look at what tendencies we have we obviously have the henry crete letter of 2003 and those tendencies we've looked at for years and years and years and i was someone and i'm just gonna say i was someone who when we had the kingdom study and I was like, okay, wow, this is it. I remember as a 18 year old kid, literally looking at that and saying, okay, wow, this is the church that I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm only gonna go to this church and I'm not gonna go speak. I turned down speaking things in other churches. Cause it's like, I mean, it was just super discouraged. And so I drank the Kool-Aid. I got in arguments with my friends who later I went and apologized to them. And I just said, yo, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry for how I came across. And um, here's what's crazy is that some of my best friends are not in our ICOC fellowship. Now, are we ever going to agree on certain things? No. But what's interesting, I find for people who, who, and I get it, some people are like, you know, maybe they have conscience hangups, but some of my best friends, like, you know, they maybe have a little bit different doctrine with certain things, but I haven't budged in my doctrinal position with certain things. I have not budged and I don't ever see that I will, but neither have they, but we love each other. And I just wonder, Doug, is there a way for that to happen? Like, is that, is that not okay? <laughs> just as we have differences within our local church or a broader fellowship, there are differences in, in the world. You know, a I'm doing a series right now on the Sermon on the Mount and a question I keep asking, you know, Matthew five, six, seven is if you met someone who wasn't part of your group, uh, maybe didn't share all the doctrines you hold sacred, but he lived by the Sermon on the Mount. He or she embodied the Beatitudes, had the righteousness beyond the Pharisees, was salt and light, and wasn't doing it for show, but was praying and giving and fasting and, and not becoming worldly, you know, and, and on the narrow road and preaching the word. And so if someone lived by the Sermon on the Mount, but didn't share the various doctrinal emphases of your fellowship, would you consider that person to be a Christian? I ask that question because many would say, no, no, they can't be unless they're with us. And others would say, well, obviously. And I think we actually have both responses, both of those mindsets um, that I, I've observed uh, of, of late. But seeing what God is doing in the world means we need to open our eyes. The problem of the Pharisees, there were several, but they had difficulty seeing what God was doing right in front of them. They found it easier to say, well, it can't be from God because they're not with us, so it must be from Beelzebub. It must be from Satan. That's a, that's a very easy response to dismiss what God is doing. But I would like to see a lot more humility uh, and, and seeing what God is doing globally. Yeah, and, and this transitions into our last question fairly well. Uh, so I'm going to both and. So our listeners, you're probably going to just, I'm probably going to freak you out with what I'm about to say. So on one hand, I feel very, very compelled to not be elite or have this mindset of elitism. Like I, it's not the next generation. They're, they're not going to draw those types of lines. Um, for example, when I think of the mainstream church, churches, some of my uh, classmates, we they're in the mainstream churches and we personally do not care. We do not care about the old guard alliances. We don't like 
We do not. We don't care about who had hard feelings towards whoever. Like the next generation, we don't have to be enslaved to unreconciliation of the previous generation. Like we don't. Um, and so, but one of the things that I feel on the opposite side is, and I know this is a both and, I also get really frustrated sometimes when people, they, they reference our fellowship as if nothing has changed. And, and one of the things I know about trauma is trauma basically mm -hmm. puts uh, a perspective on ice. So you go through a really hard situation and what trauma does is it kind of freezes everything that's, you know, it, it, it freezes all the properties of an experience. And, and, and it's in it's encased. And so what happens is when we go through a traumatic event, years can pass, but our perspective about the people who changed or damaged us remains the same. And I'm talking about exactly the same. I find that we have made, gosh, so many changes have been made. And yet there are people who feel like it's the same thing. And I just, sometimes it just, I'm like, what do you, what? Who are you looking at? Who are you talking to? Like, it's not the same. It is not the same. And I'm getting a little emotional talking about this because I'm like, yo, I'm a trauma therapist and a, a teacher and I assess trauma. And I'm telling you, there are more pockets of safety than I've ever seen ever since I've been here for 20 years. There are more pockets of safety. Are there some places that aren't evolving or maturing at the same clip rate? Absolutely. And for whatever reasons, I, I, I can't speculate on. But there has been change, Doug. Uh, what would you like to say about that? Sorry, I went on a rant. No, you feel it deeply. And I think many of us feel these things deeply. It's appropriate. I mean, our experience of whether things are changing or not is it's location specific. As I said, there, there are parts of the world where things have hardly changed. There are parts of the world where things have changed a lot. It just depends where you are. You know, there's certainly a lot of talk about change. I agree, there there has been a lot of change. There's a lot of chatter, if you use that word, you know, on, on the, the networks. There's been a partial dismantling of hierarchy, but I, though I think the old system prevails in many places, but in many places, grace rules instead of just bossiness. But I, I think without a better theology of kingdom, I, I think most Christians have no idea really what kingdom actually is, what that means, a better theology of the church, the spirit. It, 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 it's hard to overcome the default mode. And not only that, everything tends to be viewed with respect to the old. And unfortunately, often I, I find people are, are more clear about what they're against than what they're for. And that's uh, that may be a relief for a while. Okay, I, I'm, I'm not going there, but where are you going? If anywhere, if our perspective is simply reactionary and not we're not following the spirit and looking at what God's doing and, and, and being proactive, then uh, we will shrink and die. And, and our fellowship globally right now is growing in some places, but overall it's not. It hasn't, hasn't for years. It's in a hold the fort mode right now, I would say. You know, Doug, when you talk about circling the wagons, uh, to me, I, I, I consider that very alarming uh, because, you know, when we think about circling the wagons, our back is typically toward one another. And then our posture towards a threat is very much reactive towards the world around us. 
And, you know, I would also say, you know, if, if people are finding themselves in survival mode, then it's more likely that they're going to have extreme interpretations of scripture, right? When we feel insecure and we don't feel safe, we typically become more susceptible to creating a closed group. We become a bit too endogenous, meaning we don't really want an outside perspective because that feels threatening. And again, when we stay in survival mode for too long, our brain stays reactive. And the way that we come across to other people can be very harmful and can create a ton of trauma for people. And I hesitate to even bring up the reality of, of the darkest side of cults. You know, I, uh, most people have a digestive tract for a little T trauma when I start talking about big T trauma. So for example, I've worked in situations without going into detail where we have had to process the reality of uh, childhood, child sacrifices, Stephen King type stuff. And, and again, that's like big T trauma. That's you know, most people can't relate to that. And I, I don't bring it up most times because, you know, it, it kind of makes a caricature out of trauma. You know, people think, oh, well, I don't have any trauma in my life because I haven't experienced that. And I think we have to be very careful when we start comparing our experiences to one another. And again, all of this is possible when you have a closed group, when you have a closed system. We're not allowing other perspectives to help us to interpret scripture. We're not allowing other perspectives to give us feedback on the harm we might be causing. Yeah, I've actually come across child sacrifice several times as well. And it's in the Old Testament. Right now I'm in Ezekiel a number of times, and there are many passages in, throughout the Old Testament that show that God's people were literally buying into sacrificing, burning your firstborn child, just like the Canaanites did. You say, how could that possibly be? But these things are deep and hard to overcome. And kind of going back to this idea of have things changed specifically within our fellowship of churches. And, and I think it's important to identify a reference point, right? When, when you say that things have not changed, okay, what is your reference point? And I think one of the, the more global or central reference points is the Henry Crete letter of 2003. And it gets in, and we're talking about dozens and dozens of paper. I think it's over 40 pages long of all these different ways that abuses were happening systemically. And a lot of it had to do with a closed system. We got ourselves into, into that sort of arrangement. But when I think about the Henry Crete letter, to me, that's kind of a little bit of a baseline of where we were. And we have made so several changes since then to the indictments that were true and were founded. And I think as we've made uh, different changes, I would hope that people's perspective would change. Now, here's the thing. I understand that it's like there are certain parts of the world that are uh, at a different pace as it relates to how they're looking at some of the things that Henry Crete brought up. And when you, you had mentioned it, you know, advice was a command. You know, we were taking, you know, people from one church and putting them into another. That, that did a lot of damage. But can you just give us uh, some observations that you have as it relates to what you've seen? And, and again, I don't want to be specific. I don't want to call anyone out. But are there some observations that you have about where things have changed and maybe where maybe they haven't? Uh, in North America? especially the United States and Canada, it's changed a lot, although there are exceptions. In most of Europe, it's changed as well, not everywhere. 
in the other continents, it less change, I, I would say. And because I, maybe with the exception of Australia, but because I visit all the continents, this is what I observe. Uh, but they're, they're, uh, I meet people in every country who are, they're working for change. They're aware of the, the default mode. They don't want to go back to that. They, they want to be godly. They want to be passionate and love the poor and love the lost and love the Lord. But they don't want to uh, get caught up in the unhealthy things. Uh, again, I think it really depends where you are. But in the United States, it, during this interview, I'm here. I'm in the United States right now. Um, I think things are generally going in a better direction. Not that they're growing. I, we don't see that kind of... Uh, a, a growth, and even in, in really getting to know God's word, although more and more uh, church leaders are taking this seriously, in most places, nothing's happening, and people are bored out of their minds. <laughs> uh, so that may sound a little a little negative, but um, my, my experience is, uh, is based on what I see in many countries, Kyle, and uh, I'm still very, very concerned about what I see. One thing I wanted to uh, talk about just very briefly, and I had some reservations about it, but I want to bring it up because I think this is a good time. You know, there are certain Facebook groups that are out there, XICOC, ICOC is a cult and so forth like that. I think it's important that although we understand that they are there and some of us might have concerns and, and become very defensive and we want to correct things. One thing I just, I would ask, uh, is that we probably just leave those individuals, uh, let them be in peace. You know, I saw one of the comments and, and I've commented once, but I, only one time because I thought, you know what, this is a community where people are trying to heal and grow and, and my presence isn't probably helping. Um, I've made, I've seen other comments of people who are trying to defend, you know, or set the record straight. And, and, I, and, and I remember one comment on there just kind of was, Hey, will you just let us be? Will you just just let us alone? And I, guys, I understand some of us. We we really want to correct. Sometimes you have to connect though, right? Before you correct, right? We have to connect before we correct. And some of us, we just are eager to set the record straight and all of that. The reality is, is that there are certain people who have these dominant mental models of what we are. And unfortunately, we are sort of characterized as, as it, you know, some people would characterize the ICUS OC as manipulative and, you know, uh, toxic. And and I would just say, if you're if you're going to engage, um, that might not be wise. And and I'm just going to say, you know what, just let them be. And you know, Doug, I don't know if there's something you wanted to say around right. that. Uh, we we give in to fear. We're afraid that if we don't intervene and clarify and shut some things down, then false practice and false teaching will cause everything to disintegrate. No matter what we do, there's always going to be imbalances. There'll be wrong teaching, wrong emphases, wrong practices. And we're part of that. We've caused and we've perpetuated error and we're trying to do better all the time, but it's okay. Uh, these small groups, these house churches, these Fellowships don't have to be perfect. We strive for perfection, but to try to manage the outcome and make it happen, I would say that's relying on the flesh instead of trusting God, instead of relying on the spirit. That's unhealthy. It, it, it will make us weird as controlling people, and it will make people want us to stay away. 
<laughs> we have to give people the space to make decisions, even to make errors. Now, God does that with you and me. We need to extend that freedom to others. I appreciate your perspective because uh, it, it, it's not overgeneralizing. I think what I've noticed is people get really triggered when we overgeneralize and we try to put people into groups that are too simplistic or that aren't representative of their character or their nature. And so I appreciate that. I mean, people like it when we, we kind of add some nuance to things. And, and others of us, I, I think, you know, when, when you think about some of these harder subjects, maybe just feel like we're just stirring up stuff. Why, why, why would you dig up this stuff that's in the past? Why would you bring stuff up that's unhealed? Why would you focus on things like this that can quote unquote become divisive or hot topic or distractions. And we don't need any more of that. And I just want to say, I, I understand where some of us are coming from. If you're one of those people, I would also just add in a sort of a funny reference. You know, there's a reason why the song uh, we don't talk about Bruno is number one uh, across. And I would almost say it's one of the number one songs in the world right now. Okay. That we don't talk about. Why is that popular? Why, why, why is that something that has taken off the way it has? And, uh, you know, here's, here's my motto. And, and it, it's showed up in my lives many times is that what we run from runs us. And so I think some of us who, you know, we want to see things stabilized or whatever, maybe just feel like this is a conversation that doesn't necessarily help to stabilize. And I would disagree because sometimes in order to get to a stable place, you've got to work through painful stuff. And I don't like that any more than you do. Okay, Doug, when it comes to resources, are there any resources that you want to recommend, including your own? Well, there's a lot of material at my website, uh, douglasjacobi.com. If you go under articles and look at the leadership section, there'll be a lot that would be a, that connects uh, to today. I, I did think of two books I, I could recommend. One is called Transformed by Truth. And this is the story of the... Uh, Church of God, the Worldwide Church of God. The author is Zach. It's T-Z, or Z, outside the United States, T-Z-A-C-H. And he talks about the transition from their group uh, having some very idiocentric doctrines and strong control to becoming a bit more uh, uh, gracious and mainstream. And it's uh, uncanny. It's The book's over 20 years old, but I read it back in 03, found it to be very helpful. A second book is by Francine Rivers. She's a very popular Christian writer. And the book is called And the Shofar Blew. Shofar, the trumpet that the Jews, the ancient Israelites, blew, S-H-O-F-A-R. And the Shofar Blew, which speaks of the uh, success of a certain Midwest uh, preacher, very effective evangelistically. He ends up moving to a large city on the coast and starts a movement that becomes extremely effective. Power goes to his head and things unwind somewhat predictably, but it's a scary, um, incredibly accurate, and it's not based on what happened in one group, not my group. It's based on what happens multiple times around the world. So I would rec recommend Rivers and the Shofar Blue. It's very easy to read. Even the, the one by Tack, Transformed by Truth, is easy to read, but those would be just two books. There's a lot of literature out there, but that's my two cents. Well, it's been a great episode. I appreciate all who have tuned in, Doug. I appreciate you especially, and I'm looking forward to the next interview where we're specifically going to touch on religious bullying. I'll see you next time.